today's scripture comes from Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 17 and 20 to 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to all things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to New Creation Fellowship. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really my joy and privilege in leading us in our time in God's Word today. So without further ado, would you mind bowing your heads with me and asking for the Lord's blessing? Father, we ask now that after finishing our six days in the world scattered about, we have now gathered together by the summoning of your mercy and love to gather again in this place so that we could sit at your feet and hear your word. Father, your word truly is the sustenance of our faith, the nourishment to our souls, the hope for our heart. And we ask now that you would speak to us as we sit at your feet. God, whatever distractions, whatever discouragements, whatever is causing us to be dissuaded from living out our identity as followers of Jesus, we ask now that you would fortify us so that we can once again be recommitted and re-strengthened of living out this wonderful calling to where we live as children of Christ, excuse me, children of God and ambassadors of Christ. And so now, Lord, would you bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So, if you've been coming to NCF for a while, you should know by now that here at NCF, we're all about the Bible. The Bible, the Bible the Bible. We are all about the Bible. In fact, we are so much about the Bible that not only is it one of our core values, I would dare say that it is the core value, the core value that drives, that identifies, and leads us as a community of faith. And because that is so, that also means that what the Bible identifies as its own core value, oh, that is the most preeminent core value of all. That is what we're truly and really all about. And yet, some of us may not know what that is. If by chance you're here this morning and you have no clue of what the Bible would say its own core value is, I would draw your attention to 2 Timothy chapter 3, where starting in the 16th verse, we read, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good thing work. What is the core value of the Bible according to this passage in the Bible? The answer, spiritual maturity, or the way we say around here, to grow up in the gospel. Over and over, all throughout the scriptures, you see this recurring theme of spiritual growth. And in each instance that you do see this theme, you come across this idea that spiritual maturity is, as far as God is concerned, the most highly valued commodity in all of reality. For example, if you ever read through the book of Proverbs, you come to discover that wisdom, which is how the ancient believers refer to spiritual maturity, is, according to Proverbs, more 
treasured, more valuable than gold, than fine gold. It is more valuable than precious rubies and stones and whatever priceless items that you could find buried on the earth. Why? Because according to scripture, a person who has achieved spiritual maturity is considered the richest person of all. Because again, according to God, there is nothing more valuable, nothing more precious, nothing more treasured than spiritual maturity, which is why, therefore, we should come to no surprise that like with anything that has incredible value, we come to discover the existence of counterfeits. Counterfeits. Anything that has incredible value is always going to be copied with a cheap, fake version. And that's what I want to speak about today as we're continuing our annual vision sermon series where we take a look at the various components of our vision as a church. And today, I want to focus on this notion of counterfeit spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity that on the surface looks like it's genuine and real, but in reality, it's fake, it's fraudulent, it's false. Now, Let me back up for just a moment and address those of you in here who may have no idea that we have a vision as a church, either because this is your first time with us or you just are very good at not paying attention. So if that is you, in either case, let me read to you our vision as a church. It says this, NCF exists to bring hope to our broken world through men and women who grow up in the gospel by courageously display their allegiance to Jesus through our priorities, our family, our work life, and our compassion to the poor. Number two, selflessly invest in personal relationships in order to share the gospel within our various social networks, which is known as oikos. And number three, confidently engage culture with biblical wisdom in order to promote an inclusive community that flourishes Queens, New York City, the world, and the next generation. This is our vision as a church. And if you look at that first sentence, you'll see that phrase that encapsulates how we speak of spiritual maturity, to grow up. Last week, we kicked off this series by talking about the biggest hindrance to spiritual maturity. Today, we're going to talk about the biggest con to spiritual maturity, or as I'm going to phrase it throughout the message, as counterfeit spiritual maturity. And so let's take a look at what the Apostle Paul has to say about this very issue in Colossians chapter 2. And as we do, he's going to teach us Three things. Number one, what counterfeit spiritual maturity looks like. Number two, who is responsible for counterfeit spiritual maturity. And finally, who is responsible for genuine spiritual maturity. Okay? What it looks like, who's responsible for it, and who's responsible for the genuine version. Okay? Let's jump right in. First, what counterfeit spiritual maturity looks like. Starting in verse 16, the Apostle Paul says these words. Therefore... Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, in order to fully understand what this one little verse says, you have to have a little brief background to the setting, okay? The churches in Colossae, which was a little city in the Middle East, was bombarded with cults everywhere, which means there were False teachers running rampant all over the place in this part of the world. And New Testament scholars tell us that some of these false teachers were pretty successful in infiltrating the churches in Colossae, therefore negatively influenced the Christians who made part of these churches. These Colossian Christians came under the influence of false teachers. This is why Paul says what he does in verse 16. Let no one pass judgment on you, the no one being false teachers. Now, At this point, you should be asking yourself a question. A question, something to the effect of, how in the world could this be possible? How could a church 
that has been genuinely informed and transformed by the gospel, a church that has been legitimized by the ministry of Paul by virtue of him writing this letter, how could a church like that, a true church, be infected and infiltrated by false teachers? It just doesn't seem like something like that should happen. Well, consider what one New Testament scholar by the name of Stephen Neal, how he answers that question. He writes this, quote, One thing is quite clear. The false teachers came in with the claim that they would complete and perfect the simple and elementary faith to which the Colossians had been introduced by Paul and his friends. This is what the false teachers always do. Quote, What you have is quite all right and a good foundation for faith. Now, let us just finish it off for you and you will really be Christians. End quote. If you don't know by now, you should know this. Cult leaders, counterfeiters, con men, they all exhibit the same MO. And that is, they identify what, they, what their victims highly value, highly prize, and they leverage that as a way to get their way over their victims. And this is what happened in the church in Colossae. You see, these false teachers easily saw that the Colossians prized, as all Christians should, spiritual maturity. And so under the guise of claiming that they could help them mature even more in their faith, these false teachers came in, they were blindly accepted by the Colossians, and therefore they were influenced by them. Which begs the question, what kind of influence did these Colossians want to have over the people in the Colossian church? Well, it tells us in verse 16, the false teachers wanted the Colossians to, quote, avoid certain foods and drinks, as well as engage in certain celebrations, festivals, and events such as the new moon, and sabbaths now if what i just said to you just sounds a bunch of gibberish to you let me explain what's going on here every religion every religion has laws and rituals in it every religions including christianity and when i say christianity i don't mean christianity as we know it now i also mean christianity before jesus you're thinking to yourself, what are you talking about, Pastor John? There was no Christianity before jesus that's why we call it christianity because it came after christ oh Friend, did you not know there was a Christianity before Jesus? We called it Judaism, the Jewish religion. Now, I know when you hear that, that sounds a little off because you were taught that the Jewish religion and Christianity are very different religions. At least that's how modern Jews see it today. And on the one hand, that is true. Christianity and modern Judaism are very different, very different religions. But if you're talking about ancient Judaism where you have stories pertaining to the creation accounts, to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Moses, to David, of Noah. Those historical narratives, those are our stories. That's our background. That's our spiritual roots, which is why the Jewish Bible, i.e. the Old Testament, make up the Christian Bible. Oh, yes, indeed. There was a Christianity even before Jesus. And when you read the Old Testament especially the early books like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, there you will come to discover that there are many commands that God gave his people to obey. For example, if you read the book of Leviticus, there are tons of commands that God gives on how they should abstain from eating certain kinds of food or they should only eat certain kinds of food during this time of year or this kind of spiritual event. Or if you read in the book of Exodus, you see tons of commands that God gives his people about celebrating certain festivals, certain events, certain Sabbaths, like the year of Jubilee. Now, putting all this together, you can easily figure out why these false teachers were so successful in having such a profound influence within the Colossian church. Why? Because all of the false teaching that they propagated, they pointed it right back to the Bible. 
all of the false teaching that these false teachers were promoting, they justified by going back to the Bible. And what was the Bible during the time of the Colossians? There was no New Testament at the time, right? Which means the only scripture they had was the Old Testament. That was their Bible. So in a sense, what these false teachers, if I had to put into words how they would talk to the Colossians, it would probably go something like this. Uh, Guys... If you want to truly be spiritually mature, don't you think we should follow the same blueprint pattern of people like Moses, of, you know, David and Hezekiah? What, do you think you're so much better than they are? Do you think you're so evolved that you're so much superior than these veteran saints? Don't you think we should uphold the traditions of our forefathers? So if you're a Colossian and you're hearing this and they're pointing to scripture, you're thinking, what could I possibly say, right? What could I possibly say? And here you come to see what counterfeit spiritual maturity looks like. You know what it looks like? It looks biblical. Let me say that again. Counterfeit spiritual maturity looks biblical. You've heard the phrase, if it sounds like a duck, if it talks like, wait, if it sounds like a duck, it looks like a duck, right? In a sense, these false teachers use their false teaching and try to make it legitimate by saying, hey, It sounds biblical. Look, it's in there. It looks biblical. Hey, our teaching is biblical, right? That is what was happening, and that was the result of what was going on. If you had to describe, if a Colossian had to describe what a mature follower of God looked like, it would probably look no different than the picture that these false teachers were painting for the Colossians to pattern their lives after. And so you hear all this, and you're so confused, because these are false teachers. They're wolf in sheep's clothing. They're wrong, right? They're of bad things, right? They're not true. They're not genuine. And yet, they're teaching from the Bible? How do we explain this? How are we to comprehend this? And furthermore, why would Paul, who's also passionate about the Scriptures, who's also committed to the same goal as these false teachers are claiming, spiritual maturity, why do they have such a problem? Why does he have such a problem with them. What is these false teachers? What, what is it about them that make them false? What make them wrong? That's a great question. And the answer leads me to my next point. Who is responsible for counterfeit spiritual maturity? Jump down to verse 20, where we read Paul saying these words. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and Teachings. Now, embedded in these verses, Paul identifies for us the party responsible for counterfeit spiritual maturity. And surprisingly, he doesn't identify the false teachers as the one responsible for it. Who does he say is responsible for the counterfeit false teaching? He refers to it as the elemental spirits of the world. Now, what in the world is that referring to? Well, there's some mild debate amongst New Testament scholars, but really there's no real debate, because a majority of New Testament scholars would say that what Paul is referring to, or who specifically he's referring to, is Satan and his demonic forces. These are the elemental spirits of the world, and I firmly agree with that. Why? Because if you read what he says in Romans chapter 6, Paul says something very similar. In this passage, he says that Christ died to the elemental spirits of the world. In Romans chapter 6, he says that Christ died so that the dominion and power of sin would be no more. Here's the question. Who is the one who uses his power and dominion to lead us to sin? It's Satan, right? 
Satan. So clearly, Paul is exacting the same idea that Satan is the responsible party for counterfeit spiritual maturity. Now you hear that and you think, how can that possibly be right? How can it be right that the devil, of all people, would want to promote any sort of spirituality whatsoever because you and I assume that Satan is all about nothing but destruction and violence. No, Satan, he wants to promote murder and rape and robbery and genocide. Satan promoting religion? Satan promoting observance to God's rituals, obedience to God's law? No, 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 that doesn't fit his calling cards. Truly, Satan would never be so spiritual. Oh, really? You know, in another instance where Paul was battling another group of false teachers, you know how he describes Satan to the Corinthians in that context? You know how he calls Satan? Listen to what he says about Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 12, we read, But I will continue doing what I have always done. This will undercut those who are looking for an opportunity to boast that their work is just like ours. These people are false prophets. Apostles, excuse me. They are deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. But I am not surprised. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Remember what we're talking about here. We're not talking about genuine godliness. We're not talking about genuine spiritual maturity, but counterfeit spiritual maturity. Something that looks genuine but is far from it something that looks mature but it is not mature whatsoever there was a years ago a well-known pastor down in philadelphia by the name of um, donald barnhouse he was the pastor of a very historic church called 10th presbyterian and one sunday morning he went up to his pulpit and he asked this question of his congregation if satan took over a city what would that city look like now Some of you might hear that and be like, what a stupid question to ask. It's so obvious what a city would look like. It would look like Philadelphia today, right? Right? That's why it would be so filled with violence and, and pornography and everything. But listen to his response because it's a response that I'm willing to bet wouldn't be yours. He says this, quote, if Satan took over the city, all of the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and the churches would be full every Sunday. Huh. Here's something that you need to understand. Satan has one goal and one goal only, and that is to destroy mankind's relationship with God. And of course, yes, one of the ways that he will do that is by tempting people to do violent and atrocious things. Rob, steal, cheat, genocide, sex trafficking, what have you. But perhaps one of the most effective ways in which he will destroy man's relationship to God is by deceiving people into thinking that they are truly spiritually mature when in fact they are not even believers. And the reason why I say he is deceiving is because he is so good, he is so smooth, he is so effective in making people think that people can truly be not only mature on their own, but that they can be holy, they can be godly, they can be righteous in their own strength, by their own power, in accordance to their own will. Listen, the Bible makes it crystal clear. Just because you are a good person, 
Just because you are a moral person, just because you are a religious person, does not necessarily mean that you are truly spiritually mature. Again, just because you are a good person, just because you are a moral person, just because you are a religious person, does not mean that you are truly a spiritually mature person. And this is something that all of you, all of us, need to grasp, because I'm afraid that many of us fall into this deception of Satan all the time. How many of us in here think that we're something because either A, we don't do certain things, like, oh, I don't smoke, I don't go clubbing, I don't date non-Christians, I don't sleep around, I'm not promiscuous, or we say things that we do do that other people do. I come to church every Sunday. I serve faithfully in Oikos, a toddler ministry. I must mean, that all must mean I'm spiritually mature, right? Wrong. Because it's not necessarily true. It is possible to give off the appearance that you're spiritually mature when in reality, you're spiritually dead. Maybe the things that you look to as proof that you're ruled by the Holy Spirit in actuality is proof that you're fooled by the evil spirit. Maybe what you look to as proof that you're living for the glory of God in reality is proof that you're living for your own religious ego. Maybe what you look to as proof that you're truly spiritually mature in reality is just proof that you're very good at impersonating a spiritually mature person. Listen to how Tim Keller echoes what I'm saying. He writes this, quote, You can rebel against and be alienated from God either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. Wow. Just because you meticulously observe every law in the Bible and resist every temptation to sin does not necessarily mean that you are a holy, righteous, or mature person at all. So here's the question. How can we tell whether the maturity that we believe that we possess is truly genuine maturity or simply counterfeit maturity? And furthermore, how can we actually cultivate true spiritual maturity and not fall into an imposter form of it? And that's a very important question that we need to answer. And to do so, we go to my final point. Who is responsible for genuine spiritual maturity? Going back up to verse 17, let's read that again because there Paul gives a very interesting description of all the Old Testament laws, all the Old Testament rituals that these false teachers chronically chronically pointed to. Listen to what he says. These, these Old Testament laws and rituals, are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now that is so interesting. What in the world is Paul saying? He's saying something to the effect that all the Old Testament laws, all the Old Testament observances, they're a shadow? What does that mean? Well, let's think about it. We all know what a shadow is. A shadow is an image of something or someone. But unlike the image that you would see in a mirror, the shadow or the image of a shadow is a very dark, literally opaque, very nebulous image to where you can't really see much detail whatsoever. I mean, you can see certain characteristics, but the nature of a shadow in and of itself is very vague. And there's something very hidden about the shadow itself. So if you look at a shadow, you can make out certain things, like maybe a person might be bald, maybe a person might be overweight. But beyond that, you don't know any specific details because there's a certain mystery, there's a certain hiddenness enraptured around a shadow. 
right? And Paul is essentially saying that all the Old Testament laws, all the Old Testament rituals, they are a shadow of someone. They are a shadow of a specific person. Now, here's where all the false teachers go wrong in Colossae. When people think that they can be good enough for God and accepted by God because they're, quote, religious, they obey all the laws, and therefore they're capable by their own strength and abilities to be a true, mature person. You know what they're doing? They're assuming that the shadow of the Old Testament is their shadow. Now, I know that sounds vague. I'm going to lose you. So let me try and capture you back with a very silly, silly illustration. Let's say you have a guy, four foot five, 120 pounds, and standing behind him without him knowing is Dwayne Johnson, the rock. 260 pounds of pure muscles at six foot five. Okay, And behind both of them is an illuminating sun shining its beams of light behind them. And let's say this four-foot foot, foot guy looks down and he sees this massive, huge, muscular shadow. He can think of one of two things. He could think, A, someone's standing behind me because that ain't my shadow. Or B, man, I'm pretty hot. I'm pretty something. Look at me. Oh, my gosh. I'm so powerful. I'm so strong. I'm so capable. Paul is saying to the Colossians, that's what the false teachers are trying to do to you. They're trying to persuade you that you're Dwayne Johnson when you're just a puny, helpless, pathetic person. That's what Paul is saying, right? He is saying that all the shadows of the Old Testament All the ceremonies, all the laws that describe a perfectly holy, righteous person, that ain't your shadow. That's somebody else's shadow. Whose shadow is it? It's the shadow of Christ. That's what he means in 17 when he says the substance is of Christ. The thing, the solid object that is casting the shadow, that ain't you. That is Christ. All the holiness, all the righteousness, all the purity, all the maturity that you see being foreshadowed in all the Old Testament laws, that is the righteousness, the holiness, and the maturity of Christ. That is not you. So what does that mean? It means you and I and everyone else, with the exception of Jesus, are not capable on our own of being sinless, of being holy, of being good enough for God, of being mature on our own. Because you and I, we are all sinners. Sure, The Old Testament laws and rituals do perfectly describe a righteous, holy person. But again, that's not your shadow. It's the shadow of Jesus. Which means, if you want to be righteous, if you truly want to be holy, if you truly want to acquire true, genuine spiritual maturity, it is not going to be through your personal obedience. It's not going to be through your personal sacrifice. It's not going to be through your personal efforts to mature. No. It's going to be through the obedience of Jesus. It's going to be through the sacrifice of Jesus. It's going to be through the maturity of Jesus. You see, when you make the mistake of assuming that you're capable of doing everything God commands in Scripture, like the false teachers in Colossae did, you have a case of mistaken identity. You're like that, that, that sad case, that four foot five person who thinks they're six foot five and 260 pounds of pure muscle. And when that happens, you're in a severe spiritual condition. Because when you think that you are capable of acquiring the holiness and achieving the maturity that only Jesus can do, you know what that means? You're not seeing yourself as you, you're seeing yourself as Jesus. And the moment you see yourself as Jesus, that is, you're capable of being that person that God demands, 
Would you ever run to the true Jesus because you are a helpless sinner who needs him? Again, Tim Keller writes, if you think you can keep all of God's laws, then you've come to the false conclusion that you have rights. God owes you answered prayers and a good life and a ticket to heaven when you die. You don't need a savior who pardons you by free grace for you are your own savior. You can avoid Jesus by keeping all the moral law. The only way you and I can truly genuinely be mature is if we depend not on ourselves, but depend on the only one who's capable of being truly genuinely mature. And that is Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, how does all this play out practically? What does it mean to only look to Jesus for maturity and not for your own efforts? Well, it looks like this. The next time you're tempted to fall into sin, the next time you feel your flesh, you feel Satan's minions enticing you, tempting you, trying to get you to give in to sin, to indulge in the flesh, do not do what the false teachers tell you you should do which is basically just try harder, make every effort to obey, get involved with every spiritual discipline possible, read your Bible every morning, go to church every Sunday, go on missions this summer, serve in Thailand. Just do all these things. Make the effort. Try hard. Do it, do it, do it. After all, it's in the Bible. Jesus prayed. Jesus read the scripture. Everything can be biblical. But Paul would say, don't do that. Because the moment you do that, the moment you begin this spiraling down towards counterfeit spiritual maturity. Instead, what you should do the moment you are tempted and enticed to sin is first and foremost remember that in Christ, if you believe the gospel, you're already righteous. You're already holy. You're already perfect. You're already spiritually mature. See, the gospel teaches us that God came as Jesus Christ and he died on the cross. And on the cross, he definitively defeated sin and death. He paid for all your sins and my sins. He definitively done the work. But that wasn't all he did. He took all of our sins and definitively defeated them. And you know what he gave us in return? He gave us all his holiness. He gave us all of his righteousness. He gave all of his spiritual maturity to where now you definitively are sanctified. You're definitively holy. You're definitively spiritually mature, which means when God looks at you in Christ, he sees you as someone who's already victorious in the very sin at the moment right now you're being tempted to give into. Right? That is what the gospel teaches And that is what you need to remember because as you remember that, that all of a sudden will give you the motivation and the desire to actually say no, to not give in to the very sin that in God's eyes, in Christ, says you already won over. That's what the gospel teaches us. It's because you're already holy. It's because you're already mature that you can overcome things that would try to make you immature. It's not true. You are already mature. Now, some people will hear what I'm saying, and they think that it's completely off. Some would even go so far and say, oh, that's heretical. Pastor, if what you're saying is true, then all you're going to do is encourage everyone at NCF to just sin all the time, right? Because what you're basically saying is they've already got the prize. It's like that professor who gives A's to students at the beginning of the semester. There's going to be no drive, no motivation for them to to earn the A, to work hard, to learn, right? And that's what you're going to do. If you keep teaching this idea that they're already definitively sanctified, that they're already mature in Christ, 
They're not going to make any effort to truly become mature and truly become holy. But I completely disagree because of what Paul says in 21. What does he say? He says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He's quoting these false teachers of what they were saying to the Colossians. And it's unfortunate because you can't really pick it up in the English. But if you read these statements, the false teachers here, they're very much written in a very threatening tone. Okay? In the original Greek, these statements are written in a very tense, threatening tone, which tells us these false teachers, they were spiritually abusive to the Colossians. By the way, as a quick an aside, that's another way how you can tell a false teacher. Even if a false teacher might teach things from the Bible, if he teaches it in a way to where you feel threatened, you feel scared, you feel guilty and shame all the time to where the only motivating drive as to why you would want to follow Scripture and obey God is because you're afraid, you're filled with guilt, and you're filled with shame, you might be under the authority of someone who might be a false teacher. Because even if what they say comes from the Bible, if the result is, <coughs> I'm driven by fear, I'm driven by guilt and shame, you don't have the true gospel working in you. That's not the fruit of what the gospel should be doing. God never intended for your obedience to be driven by fear, to be driven by guilt. And if that's how you're driven today, somehow, some way, you've come under a counterfeit form of the gospel and the maturity that you think you're exhibiting is not true maturity. It's not true growth. Come out of it now and believe the gospel because the whole point of what the gospel should do is that it should make you want to obey with joy, with happiness, with thanksgiving. You know, when I married Sarah and I stay faithful to her as my wife, do you think the reason why I do that is because, oh, you know, I don't want to give in to lust by looking at other women, so I'm just going to marry Sarah so I can avoid falling into sin and lust by lusting after other women. Right? She's only a means to keep me from falling into sin. Or could it be that the reason why I marry her is because I'm enraved by her and I love her and I want to be with her, right? Even if that means I have to forsake all others, which is a vow you make when you get married, right? do I fixate on who I forsook, or do I fixate on who I've gained? You see, obedience to God is not about, oh, I have to give up giving into lust, oh, I have to give up giving into greed, or I have to give up being comfortable. Is that what it's about? Or is it about obedience? Like, I get to love my God. I get to serve Him. I get to get closer to Him. I get to know Him. I get to comprehend the mystery of His unfathomable love for me as I respond with my love for Him. True gospel obedience and true gospel maturity is response driven, not by fear, not by guilt, not by shame, but by joy and thanksgiving. And it's all driven because of Jesus' work in your life, not in your own work in your own life. Here's the question NCF. Are you living the freedom of spiritual maturity or is your spiritual growth filled with such a sense of frustration and, and fear of damnation and avoidance of retribution 
Or is it filled with joy? Is it filled with love? Is it filled with a sense of freedom? To know that even as you try to live the Christian life and you fail, there's no fear of failure. There's no fear of rejection. Jesus paid it all. And so when you do fail, you're not consumed with guilt. You're not consumed with shame. You see it as an opportunity to know more about yourself, how you're wired, how you give into sin on these parameters, and you learn how to strategize and to overcome and to mortify your flesh. And in that process, you're filled with so much joy and so much peace, so much hope, because you know you're getting that much closer to your Christ. Is that your maturity? Is that your growth? If you get that, then you are on the pathway of true, genuine spiritual maturity. Is that your path? I want to end now by going into some next steps to help us better apply today's message. And of course, the first always biz. If you're here today and you're not a believer, but now in light of today's message, you're ready to move forward in faith. Take this time now and pray to God and accept him as the Lord of your life. Make Jesus your Lord and Savior. And when the time comes, you can do what we're about to do in just a moment with little Jesse. We'll get you baptized, we'll get you trained, and we'll get you ready to go in your walk with God to the true path of spiritual maturity. Number two, take some time this week and honestly assess your spiritual maturity. Is it counterfeit or is it real? Two practical questions to try and figure this out. Number one, do you think you have rights that God is obligated to give you because of your, quote, obedience? Right? Does the motivation that drives your obedience fear of rejection, fear of failure, or is it driven by love and excitement and joy? And finally, number three, pick up a copy of Tim Keller's book, Prodigal God, which I quoted throughout today's message. Read it. In fact, read it with a fellow Oikos group person and then discuss the book for the next eight weeks. It's a very short book, very tiny, right? Smaller than even like the books that maybe some of you might read. Twilight, I don't know. I'm sorry, that was a jab. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I know you guys don't read Twilight or Shades of White or whatever it's called, you know. It's a small book. Is it Shades of White? Shades of Black? Whatever. Um, Take some time and read this small little book because it will have a powerful, impactful punch in your life. Right? And then grow. Grow together. Grow with us. Let's all grow together. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand true spiritual maturity. For, Lord, we know that that is what you desire more than anything. So that when we grow in the gospel, we go out with it. Father, we believe the gospel is the hope of the world. Uh, We know that the centerpiece of the gospel is not our efforts or our works. It's Jesus' effort that he successfully completed at the cross And it is his work that he even now continues as our great high priest interceding for us. Father, help us to truly live out this calling, this vision of growing up so that we can be the men and the women you've called us to be in our own personal lives, in our marriages, in our workplaces, amongst the poor, in this city for the next generation to come. So the world will know that Jesus truly is king and he is the hope of my life, of the life of this congregation, and the life of this world. Oh, Father, would you help us to live this out, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen.